Really, it was applying Chairman Kerry's disclosure abstain rule. The insiders with knowledge of material information must either disclose it to the public or abstain from trading. And it goes a little bit further by saying even once you disclose it to the public, you need to give it some time in order to genuinely reach the public, which we see even today. Some disclosures aren't reaching certain people and executives need to know who they're reaching when making disclosures. Legislation changes month to month, year to year. But over the last century, the changes have been astounding. Join Karen Woody and her students from Washington and Lee University to dig into 100 years of insider trading law. Welcome to Classroom Insiders, a podcast that describes the evolution of insider trading law. This podcast is brought to you from Washington and Lee University School of Law. I'm Professor Karen Woody, and I am teaching a class on insider trading, and I will be interviewing students about the material that we are covering in this class. Today is the inaugural episode of the Insider Trading Podcast. And so today I have with me a guest. His name is Ben Ritchie. Ben, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and some things about you. Yeah, thanks, Professor Woody. I'm a 3L here at Washington and Lee University. And over the past year and a half, I've been focusing on corporate and securities law. This past summer, I worked at the Securities and Exchange Commission in the Division of Corporation Finance in the Disclosure Review Program. Before law school, I worked at a firm in New York as a corporate paralegal. And so that's where my focus is going to be or where I would like it to be. But being a federal position with the SEC, I'll be applying there in the spring. But for right now, I'm exploring other options. Great. So did you handle any insider trading cases in either of those positions? Not in New York. I was mostly focusing on refinancings and mergers and acquisitions. And at the SEC, it was mostly reviewing the S3s and S4s that backs and companies were submitting for their initial public offering rather than following or subsequent offerings. That's awesome. I might have to have you be a guest on a follow-up podcast on SPACs and other areas of securities law that we won't be able to touch in the context of this podcast. So as I said, this podcast is about insider trading. And so we're going to start with this in this first episode, just general background on insider trading, starting with way back even before there were federal securities laws as we know them now. So I guess what I want to talk to you about, Ben, is talk, give me sort of an overview, general understanding of where insider trading sort of law came from, what was the status of it, at least up until the 1960s, which I know will be sort of more your expertise on what we'll talk about today. But what is the landscape like before the 1960s? Yeah, so I guess the law really, without mentioning insider trading, and we'll get to that, but started formulating even in the 19th century, in the late 1800s, but it looked very different than it does now. The states handled it individually. And they created a minority and a majority rule. The majority rule founded in treatise law suggested that an insider's duty to stockholders just doesn't extend to their private dealings with the stockholders. But the minority rule developed in Oliver versus Oliver 
by the Georgia Supreme Court in 1903 ruled that directors who obtained inside information by virtue of their position and not otherwise must hold that information in trust for the shareholders. It means that the insiders had a duty to disclose all the material information to shareholders before trading on the information, which is kind of what the general public take on insider trading would be today. Okay. And so why were these cases handled by state law? The federal government formed a, an administrative agency to control this. And there were eventually cases that got up to federal common law, but Congress hadn't enacted any rules because there hadn't been a need to, because the market was smaller than it is today, smaller than it was in the 20s. It just wasn't a concern as these companies were trying to gain capital in, at the beginning stages in the oh, early 20th century. That is super interesting. So each state would sort of handle their own cases that were, I assume, based on fraud or maybe contract. And that's how you handled any disputes that are, would arise out of transaction related to securities. And with someone having an unequal amount of information vis-a-vis who they transact with. Is that sort of the gist? Yeah, exactly. And that fraud, that idea of tortious fraud continued for many decades, even past the, the enactment of the 33 and 34 Act because of the language used therein. Okay. So there was one case that related to insider trading that went all the way to the Supreme Court before we see federal securities laws be enacted. What was that case? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that's Strong versus Rapide. And that went to the Supreme Court in 1909. Essentially, the defendant seller was attempting to purchase stock from the plaintiff while negotiating the sale of corporate land assets to the Philippine government at the same time. The defendant seller made an extraordinary effort to conceal information about the government purchase and his position as a company insider through the actions of an attorney agent. The Supreme Court ultimately took the case and said that the attorney's authority to make the sale was not an issue, but instead focused on whether the sale was made with deceit or misrepresentation. And they ultimately found that the steps taken to conceal the director's identity did amount to deceit and created the special facts or circumstances rule. What is special circumstances rule? Under that rule, while directors generally hold no duty to disclose material facts when trading with shareholders, a duty might arise where there is a special fact or or set of circumstances that would materially affect the price of the stock. It continued like that for a while. Courts provided significant deference within states that acknowledged the majority rule for the next couple of decades. Okay. And the majority rule, again, is essentially you have no duty to stockholders if you're an insider. You don't have to disclose your sort of maybe upper hand if you're an insider. Is that right? Yeah. There was an idea that it was an incentive for corporate executives and insiders. It was part of almost part of their employee agreement or pay structure that they had this insider information. And it was just a given that anybody was able to trade with anyone based on any information. And 
there are a bunch of market hypotheses that, that look at that in different ways. Okay. And so then the Supreme Court says in Strong versus Repeat, we will acknowledge that majority rule. No duty to disclose your inside information, but there might be a circumstance or special facts that would trigger a duty to disclose. And it sounds like that special fact likely would be something akin to deceit or something that looks much more fraudulent. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's really cut and dry and super clear on every case. (laughs) Okay. Tell me about the Goodwin case that happens, I think, around that same time or certainly in that general time period. Yeah, it's a little bit later, right before the market crash. And on the facts, on the face of the case, it's very similar. Insiders of a company were attempting to purchase as much as their own stock as possible through the stock exchange rather than quote-unquote face-to-face transaction, but while attempting to obtain mineral rights for a newly found deposit. And once a seller found out about the mineral rights and who he sold his shares to, he brought suit. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court noted the potential application of the special circumstances rule, but found that because the insiders traded on an impersonal exchange, there couldn't have been deceit. All trades on the ex- on exchanges, as they are now, for the most part, are at arm's length and can't really be intentionally deceitful or definitionally deceitful. So this created the idea that directors and officers trading on an open market exchange, just as anybody would today, owe no duty of disclosure to those with whom they trade. Okay, so it's basically an ex- so strong versus repeat. It was a clear face to face. They knew who they were transacting with. Good one sounds like similar type of scenario, but because they're using an impersonal exchange, then there's even less of a duty that in special circumstances rule likely wouldn't even be triggered because there's you sort of have immunity by virtue of an impersonal exchange. Okay. Well, the court even said that had the trades been done face-to-face, the special circumstances rule would have applied, which I think is strange. I find it difficult to buy into the idea that by virtue of doing it over a computer or over a telegraph or through the NICE, you can eliminate any sort of liability. Back in the 30s, I still think that this was a poorly decided case because Like I said, it just gives the insiders a simple alternative to avoid liability when the same sort of deceit is happening as was happening in Strong. Hmm. You agree, it sounds like, with William Carey, who we'll talk about here in a minute. Okay, that's actually a really interesting take on that, that that the market, just the fact of an impersonal market doesn't, shouldn't immunize people from acting in a deceitful way, maybe taking advantage of buyers or sellers and their lack of information. Goodwin happens around the same time, about two decades, almost three decades after Strong versus Repeat. What is happening in the world around that time, in the late 20s, early 30s? Well, the market crashes based on this inflated and fraudulent, almost, exchange. And the Great Depression hits. And the government's railing. (laughs) And so what does the federal government do in reaction to the 1929 crash? It takes them a few years, but they enact the Securities Act of 33 and the Securities Exchange Act of 34. 
and Congress felt that these laws would help mend the economic crisis that was gripping the nation. The Supreme Court has suggested more recently that the laws are designed to protect investors against fraud and to promote ethical standards of honesty and fair dealing. Chairman Kerry, who we'll discuss in a few minutes, said that the principal goals of the act were to prevent fraud and deceptive practices among corporations. I think in practice, these laws helped instill confidence in current and potential investors and helped strengthen the foundation upon which corporations and our national economy could be built back up. Okay. So that sounds like, obviously, Congress is concerned about how to essentially prevent another 1929 situation from reoccurring. And these principles sound somewhat like maybe insider trading would be something they would be concerned about. Do either of the statutes, either the 33 Act or the 34 Act, mention insider trading? Surely, no. In the Exchange Act of 34, there's Section 10B, and there's nothing said specifically about insider trading. It's simply outlawed any manipulative or deceptive practices in connection with the purchase or sale of securities. And that was similar language to the Philippine Islands Civil Code that Strong versus Repeat was founded on. And then Section 16B of the 34 Act is aimed directly at directors, officers, and majority shareholders within the company. And that also doesn't explicitly say anything about insider trading, though it does give a time limit for which they must hold shares. So 16B was a prohibition against sort of these short swing profit trades, which... Right. So 16B, you're right, does mention uh, and talk about insider trading, but in the context of those particular transactions in which insiders would create volatility by sort of moving bulk shares and trades. And I think the background to that is that that is more what Congress was concerned about having maybe potentially have playing a role or having a bigger effect on markets, which they were concerned about after 1929. But as you pointed out, Section 10B, which is where we spent the majority of our semester, because that is typically the statute under which all insider trading prosecutions are brought for the most part, at least by the SEC. It doesn't say insider trading. It doesn't prohibit insider trading and certainly doesn't define it, it sounds like. What does it say? It just outlaws the manipulative or deceptive practices in connection with the purchase or sale of securities. Right. So manipulative or deceptive devices in connection with the purchase or sale of securities. Not specific at all to insider trading. It's much broader than that, it sounds like. Okay. So great. We've caught us up on (laughs) where we are up through the 30s. We have these broad statutes on the books. No real mention of insider trading in the statutes other than, we, as I mentioned, these short swing sort of manipulative market moving amounts of stock that insiders were moving. But outside of that, this idea of the classical insider trading as we've come to know it, that didn't seem to be either the legislative intent of the 33 and 34 Act, and certainly not how the SEC was interpreting them or enforcing 10b-5. So then what changes? How do we get to insider trading, at least up until the 60s. What is the difference? How do we get to know insider trading as in its form that we nearly still have today? Well, if we read the literature from the 60s on insider trading, they all mention one of two people. 
either <clears throat> Professor William Carey or our Washington and Lee alumnus, Justice Powell. But we'll start initially with Professor Carey, and then I'm sure further episodes we'll get to Justice Powell and explain his impact. But Professor Carey became the chairman of the SEC in 1961 as he left Columbia University. President Kennedy appointed him to be the chair. And he was already an extremely prominent figure within the field of corporation law and assumed the position with a pretty bullish agenda for reform within that area. A quote from Professor Carey that I like from a speech to the Investment Bankers Association in 1962 is that, the New York Stock Exchange, though a public institution, still seems to have certain characteristics of a private club. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the mindset in which he entered office, with which he entered office. And almost immediately after he took his post, the matter of Caddy Roberts was brought before him. And he saw this seemingly as a chance to immediately make an impact on insider trading law. Hmm. Okay. So, what is that case about? What happens in that one? Well, first off, I think that most people would recognize this case as a series of unfortunate events that took place by accident and to which the defendant acted just too quickly, though potentially unknowingly. Essentially, a stockbroker at Caddy Roberts sat on the board of a company that agreed within a meeting that it was necessary to lower their annual dividend. And the company then, following the meeting, took steps to notify the NICE, Dow Jones, and the Wall Street Journal. But the telegraphs were delayed for at least an hour, and Wall Street Journal didn't learn for, I think, three hours later. But once the meeting ended, the defendant broker took the information and sold his client's shares in the company prior to the disclosure going public. And so alleging fraud, the SEC ultimately settled with the individual broker and the firm, fining them $3,000 which is currently about $27,000, and suspending the broker's trading for 20 days. Following the settlement, Chairman Carey took it upon himself to issue an administrative opinion explaining the decision, and within that, creating the Disclosure Abstain Rule. Okay, so what is the Disclosure Abstain Rule? Really, it means exactly what it sounds like. Insiders have an obligation to either disclose the material information to the trading public or abstain from trading on the information. I think that there's something beautiful about the simplicity of this rule. It seems to make sense. If you have come into this information by virtue of your position, we're going back to the minority rule from 1905, you have an obligation to either tell your shareholders or abstain from trading. Yeah, it's a pretty sweeping blanket prohibition on trading. What I find interesting about it is that Chairman Kerry, as you pointed out, wrote an administrative decision. So from the SEC, and that meant it had not really any precedential value in uh, federal courts. It applied to the SEC and to other decisions that might come in front of the SEC, but it didn't actually have any binding authority outside of that scenario. Additionally, there's some commentary that suggests that that very light punishment that defendants had in that case had to do with the idea that Chairman Kerry really wanted this on the books and didn't want it to be appealed. 
you wanted this to sort of be an easy one in which defendant would sort of take their medicine and walk away. And then they also could use the fact of this opinion, granted, without a lot of precedential authority, but certainly one that set up the SEC's theory about insider trading going forward. So I think that, that color and that sort of background to this case, and even almost this maybe strategy that Professor Carey had at the SEC to push, again, a statute, 10B5, that doesn't prohibit insider trading on its face, push it to a place where insider trading is, we have this rule that now is, you have to disclose or abstain, which as we said, is, is not in the text of the statute or in the SEC regulation or rule about 10B. So then they, sounds like we get an opportunity to have a federal court hear the issue on insider trading. And in what case was that sort of, is sort of the high watermark, or I guess I should say the watershed moment for insider trading in the federal court? Yeah. So we are talking about Texas Gold Sulfur, and there's lots of mining and land rights going on at the beginning of insider trading. And I wonder if that's just because of the time that it takes to get licenses or conduct surveys before they're released to the public. So as relevant, the defendants were directors and employees of Texas Gulf Sulphur, a publicly trading mining company. And the company conducted a mineral survey on a tract of land in Ontario, Canada. And it found that it was full of a bunch of lucrative minerals like zinc and copper and a couple others. Some people outside the company got wind of that, and the company conducted a press conference, and the company said that the results were inconclusive. In the days following the press conference, the company's secretary and engineer bought a bunch of company stock. And shortly after that, the company finally disclosed that they did find a bunch of minerals within the land. Right after that disclosure, a company director and the director's brother-in-law both bought shares. The SEC found out and brought suit under Section 10B of the Exchange Act and Rule 10B-5, and it went to SDNY. The court found that the secretary and engineer were both in violation of the Exchange Act and Rule 10B-5, but dismissed the complaint against the director because he traded after the public disclosure. All parties appealed to the Second Circuit, who affirmed the decision against the secretary and engineer, but also stated that because the director traded so closely to the public announcement that he didn't give it time to disseminate through the public and the market was unable to fully act on the information. So all three insiders were charged by the Second Circuit. Wow. So that sounds like a major takeaway. Are are there other sort of major takeaways from Texas Gulf Sulphur? Really, it was applying Chairman Kerry's disclose or abstain rule. The insiders with knowledge of material information must either disclose it to the public or abstain from trading. And it goes a little bit further by saying even once you disclose it to the public, you need to give it some time in order to genuinely reach the public, which we see even today. Some disclosures aren't reaching certain people. and executives need to know who they're reaching when making disclosures. Awesome. This has been super informative, Ben, and I will let you off the hook now because next week, one of your classmates will take up insider trading at that point in the 80s. 
And as you mentioned, the role of our distinguished alumnus, Justice Powell, who sort of single-handedly rewrites insider trading law in the 80s. And that's what we're going to get into in the next few episodes of this podcast. Ben, any final thoughts before we go? Again, I very much appreciate having you here and being on the inaugural episode of the podcast. Yeah, no, it's just nice to be here. It's cool that this has finally gotten up and running. As we go through in the next few episodes, the listeners may get more and more confused. And I would just urge everyone to come back to the 60s and use that to understand and frame our laws going forward on insider trading. Perfect. Perfect takeaway. Come back to the 60s. I like that. Disclose or abstain. Okay. Well, with that, we'll sign off. Thanks again. And we look forward to having all you listeners here next week.